Happy 18th birthday, Teen Vogue. I am thrilled to be here today for this quasi-reunion and be part of the celebration. And it is a celebration. Teen Vogue is a Condé Nast brand that has evolved so much since officially launching in 2003. which started as an aspirational fashion magazine, marketed as Vogue's little sister, is now all grown up. Fully digital, super edgy, and super bold, a transformation that has occurred with the emergence of Instagram, Snapchat, and a shift in the power and credibility of teens, otherwise known as Gen Z. At this stage, the influence this generation has on their parents and the economy is indisputable. We'll talk about that. Meanwhile, Teen Vogue is reaping the benefits of a demographic they saw the value of and believed in all along. I wanted to hear the full Teen Vogue story personally and professionally, how it started and how it's going. So who better than to have both our bookends, Teen Vogue's founding editor-in-chief, Amy Astley, and Teen Vogue's current editor-in-chief, Bersha Sharma, also joining us to provide an outside perspective on Teen Vogue's audience and bring down our average collective age is Ziad Ahmed, founder and CEO of Gen Z-focused, purpose-driven marketing engine, Juve Consulting. He is here to discuss how this generation has really redefined how we approach media and pretty much everything else today. So before we dive in, let me formally introduce our guests. Amy Astley, one of my faves, a Connie Nast veteran, who before launching Teen Vogue spent five years at House and Garden and nearly a decade at Vogue, which is a long time. In 2016, Amy was appointed editor-in-chief of Architectural Digest, another one of my faves, and now serves as its global editorial director. During her tenure, AD has experienced unprecedented growth. Amy is a total baller. Amy has grown AD's YouTube platform to nearly 4 million subscribers, and as a hit video series on YouTube's Open Door. Versha, oh my God, so much to say about Versha and how lucky we are to have her. Versha Sharma was appointed editor-in-chief of Teen Vogue last May after a stint at Now This, overseeing news, politics, including our four election cycles and culture content. So who is better to lead a brand whose social activism is paying off in droves? 10 million monthly page views and 15.9 million social followers. And then finally, Ziad, who graduated Yale in May, he leans in heavily to progressive politics, youth engagement, and social justice advocacy, has delivered four TEDx talks, and was named Forbes 30 Under 30 selection. All right, let's just jump right in. Amy, I would like to rewind back to 2003 and talk a little bit about Teen Vogue at the onset. Take us back in time. Who convinced whom that Teen Vogue was a good idea, and whose brainchild was this? Teen Vogue was Anna Wintour's idea. She was inspired by her daughter, B, who is now pregnant and about to have her own child. And I can remember saying to Anna, ooh, teen, I don't know. I'm not sure. And she said, you can do it. And that's a great gift to give to an editor. And I use those words now with people all the time. I'm always saying, no, no, you've got this. You can do it. Why did she deputize you? What was it that was happening at that time that she felt like you would be the perfect person to launch this brand? Well, I always had broad range as an editor, to be perfectly honest. You know, I was a writer, a journalist, an editor. I, I signed copy, wrote copy. I've always been more about the team than just about myself. You know, she saw those things. She's very intuitive, Anna. She's a very intuitive leader. And, and I also was always the person as a young editor asking for more. I always said, I want more, more, more. I'll do more. And I look for that in people. And when people ask me for their career advice, I always say, do more, do more, raise your 
your hand. Do it. Do it if nobody asks. It shows the people around you that you can handle more, that you're looking for more, that you want more. Just like anything else, and I know you know all about this, it's like you have a vision in your head. If you're, you know, renovating a house, for example, and then you like actually get in there and you're like, no, I thought I was going to put the kitchen over there, but I went to the bathroom over there. Like back in the day when you had, you guys were concepting Teen Vogue and thinking about what this brand could be, what changed in your mind from its original impetus or what was, you know, being discussed maybe behind the scenes versus kind of what ended up launching and from your perspective? Well, Anna was very interested in fashion and style and beauty, but I describe my Team Vogue as girl-centric. That's what Team Vogue was to me. It was about the whole girl, and I wasn't, and I'm still not, like, excessively obsessed with fashion or beauty. I really saw it as a safe place for a girl to explore all the different facets of her without it being focused on boys. This was something that was important to me. It was never articulated by anyone in the company. I just knew I was in touch with myself as a teen girl. I was an ambitious person with a lot of goals and a lot of energy. I was a serious ballet dancer, a serious wow, student. I didn't know that. Yeah, I was hardcore dancer, you know, hardcore student, and and then eventually in my own career at Condé Nast. And I just was in touch with that piece of myself. You know, it wasn't really about—at the time, teen magazines were about being sexy and alluring to men, boys, you know, how to attract boys. And that was sort of the center of the whole message. So— For me, that was my guiding star. I wanted it to be about the girl, the young female as a creative, as her own person, doing her own thing, whatever that might be. And why the mini mag? Why was it smaller than, I remember that, like at that moment in time, it was kind of distinct. Oh, that was Cy. That was Mr. Newhouse. Like point of distinction or like? Point of distinction, small size, it's cute. Let's see how it goes. You know, maybe there were paper savings. I don't know. (laughs) The test issues were full size. But then when it came out in the little size, like, I just thought it was so cute. And the readers reacted really well to it. At first, advertisers were a bit flipped out. Mm -hmm. They had to make their scent strips smaller. But you know what? They did. Mm -hmm. They made them smaller. So I knew that we had a winner. Who was on the first cover? Gwen Stefani. Really? Her Brits shot her on the beach. They became friends. Her video, Running, which is a beautiful, melancholy video, was Mm -hmm. inspired by that meeting. Her went on to take pictures of her and her family. Now, if you were editor today and you were launching Teen Vogue— who would be your cover pick? It wouldn't be someone who was into their, you know, she was probably 30 or so at that mm-hmm. point. But it shows what a different time it was in 2003 that a lot of the people in pop culture weren't so young, you know. But I shot Zendaya, you know. Zendaya and I are still friends. She's always <laughs> like, you guys came in my first break. Before I met Amy, before I actually met you in person, I saw you on the hills. And I think for some folks, their discovery of Teen Vogue actually came through the reality series Can you just speak for a second about how that happened and a little bit about your celebrity that came through that experience? Because I think you're still recognized on the street today. When my kids were younger in the schoolyard, moms would come up to me and say, I saw you on the hills. I think it was in reruns at that point. I was amazed how many people watched the hills. It was an eye opener. But I saw the opportunity in reality TV. You know, it was early days of reality TV. And I was always moving Teen Vogue towards being an entertainment brand, which is what I've done at AD now in this job, too, is moving it to being entertainment with a broad appeal. But it was early days. We didn't have social media like we have now. We still were, like, living in the email time. Kids used to send me fan mail that was written and sent in snail mail. So I knew that reality TV was the way to push Teen Vogue to a larger audience and commercialize it and reach a a more of a mass. And, And that was true. But it was a fight because Vogue was seen as this brand to be protected. And I had to really convince Mr. Newhouse and his lawyers. And it was scary. I was a young editor, and I was grilled 
about why they should allow cameras into the halls of Condé Nast. Before video. Yeah, they thought it was the barbarians at the gate. Correct. But to Mr. Newhouse's credit, you know, he really was a visionary. He really was a creative person. He really loved his editors. Mm -hmm. And I certainly was the beneficiary of that confidence that he had in me and in, in so many others. And he let me do it. He called the lawyers off, and the cameras rolled in, and the show was a big hit. It was great for Team Vogue, and it was great for The Hills. You're giving, obviously, a lot of credit to Cy, which he was an unbelievable <laughs> visionary, but you're an unbelievable visionary. Thank and you. I think a lot of the risks that you took at that time with Teen Vogue, obviously— paid off for the brand, and they weren't the standard. It wasn't how all, you know, Kanye's brands were operating at that time. Versh, I have a question for you. How does the Teen Vogue of 2003 compare to how you're thinking about the brand today? What I love about Amy's vision and and the founding vision of it is just that it was catering to something completely different from what we were seeing in the market. And it was really paying attention to what young people and at the time young girls were actually interested in. And and that emphasis on more well-rounded interests, I think, is so fantastic and absolutely true to the DNA of Teen Vogue in 2021. Obviously, the generations have changed. And a young person in 2021, in a lot of ways, is a lot different to a young person in 2003. So I think as long as the brand is staying true to its audience, and listening to what young people are saying, what they're interested in, and covering those issues from that perspective, then we're always true to the brand and to the mission. And I think that will always stay the same. That will always be the common theme, no matter how generations change. And of course, politics change and trends, everything that goes along with it changes. One thing that you said, Versha, that I want to go back to, though, is you said the generation today is very different than the generation back in 2003. And what would you say, I know this is kind of a big question to land, but in what ways would you say it is so different. And then, Zia, I'd love your perspective on that as well. A couple things here. I'd say each generation that we've seen is more socially progressive than the last, and they're very outspoken about that, and I think that's very true to the Teen Vogue DNA of today. I also think that there's less focus on strict genders, right? Each generation also has increasingly open beliefs about gender fluidity, orientation, sexuality, all of that, and I think that's also reflected in our coverage and our audience, where it doesn't feel like we have to target necessarily a specific gender or sex, but again, we're just paying attention to what young people care about. And trans youth in particular are hugely important to us in covering all the challenges that they face both legally, politically, and of course socially and mental health-wise. I think that's another way that Teen Vogue today has really made its mark. We've taken these historically excluded groups and communities and we've put them front and center. And I think that's amazing and something Teen Vogue has done, honestly, throughout its whole history. But increasingly, and especially in this digital first and social first age, it becomes that much easier to democratize the process and center creators and influencers and different kinds of talent and not just traditional old Hollywood glamour models or celebrities or whatever it might be in that case. It also begs the question, has Teen Vogue become the reflection of the generation that it's speaking to? You know, how much of it is the editor and how much of it is the audience of that time? Ziad, what's your perspective on the difference between this moment in time in terms of this 18-year-old that's consuming Teen Vogue versus where we might have been back in 2003. I consult on this question all day long with my clients, right? What is the difference between Gen Z and millennials? And the number one thing that I point to as the fundamental difference is that millennials grew up as digital natives, a world where things turned on and off and that changed their psyche and how they moved through the world. 
Gen Z were considered to be social media native. Social media is a first language that I speak. And what that means is that it's not like this tool that I'm using to like post cringy life updates, right, necessarily. It's more a language, and I can choose to speak a lot or choose to speak a little, but it's the undercurrent of society and how we choose to interact with each other. And because of that, it means that we are thought to be the first generation that thinks in terms of we, the plurals. Every young generation, to Virtua's point, has been more socially progressive and said just because things have been this way doesn't mean they have to stay this way. What is unique about Gen Z is because social media is this first language that we have and it empowers us to connect with millions of people instantaneously online all around the world, our notion of who we are is so much bigger. And with one button, our disruption can become mainstream. And I think that is the major differentiation is sort of the fluidity of our identity as well as the fluidity of our communication largely triggered by the advent of social media, which has a lot of pros and cons attached to it. Right? I don't want to pretend here that I think that like social media made us better and more inclusive. That's not necessarily the case, but it certainly empowered many of us to have more of a voice at the table, including myself. I wrote 14 Vogue as a teenager, and there wasn't a plethora of publications that were courting my writing or speaking. And I made so many of my friends at the Teen Vogue Summit. And there was this space where a lot of youth activists and entrepreneurs and speakers and thinkers could be seen and heard and inspired. And I still think we're seeing that today in a very real way. There's a Business of Fashion article in which Phil Picardi, one of the other amazing editors of Teen Vogue, who oversaw digital Teen Vogue in 2016 and later became the chief content officer, credits you, Amy, for pushing him to take more risks with the type of content Teen Vogue covered at the time. I don't know if a lot of people realize that. What were risks at that time? What types of content would have been perceived as risks? Well, we were always really straight up with our readers about mental health, sexuality. My point of view was how can we give them information and facts, not judge them, not put a judgment on them. I mean, we had a lot of hardcore sex information that parents were, like, very shocked by. But... I felt we're giving them factual information vetted by doctors and by the medical establishment, and they deserve that. And times had changed by 2016, Pam. I can remember talking to major celebrities. I'm not going to out them now. You can. In the early 2000s, <laughs> many of them, big, big names, who told me, I'm not a feminist. I was like, really? You don't believe in equal pay? You think that guy over there should get paid more than you or should have more opportunities than you? Oh, no, 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 no. I'm not saying that. I'm, we're talking about mega global stars. Mm -hmm. But I'm not a feminist. Please don't use that word in the text. Please take that out of the copy. I'm not a feminist. I don't identify well, that. Well, that was seen as a negative. Very negative. Right. But I'm just saying, look how far we've come. Women were complaining if they referred to themselves this, as feminists. We're talking about 2005, no. 2006, not. not the dark ages. Like the early 2000s, people saying, I'm not a feminist. And so going back to Phil, I said to him, tell it like it is. Tell them what they really want to know. And we definitely got in some trouble for that. But he and I felt that anything that people might Google to find out was fair game, even though it might not have been seen as like, appropriate for, like, a young, allegedly just female audience, you know. And again, all of this is happening <laughs> kind of at the outset of social media, yes. which I think is so interesting. And that's something I want to talk about for a minute as well, because, in Ziad, I'd be curious to get your perspective on this. How do you account for the nuances and contradictions that are indicative of this generation. When people say Gen Z, I feel like that's like boiling yeah. the ocean anyway. It's like, I just need to connect with them. It's like, okay, well, good luck. Yeah. What's your opinion on that? Yeah, no, I certainly agree. The first thing that I always say is that, like, I'm not a Gen Z expert, right? I'm one person out of two billion, and I can't speak unilaterally on the behalf of two billion people. That's how I feel when people ask me about being gay. They're like, talk to me from a lesbian's point of view. I'm like, well, <laughs> I can talk to you about one lesbian's point of view, but not all. Exactly. But what I always say is that I think that if you want to meaningfully understand a community, right, a white paper is not a sufficient for 
replacement for conversation. And so if you want to connect with Gen Z, you need to talk to lots of Gen Zers in real time and build community with them and get to know them. And that doesn't just look like talking to me. That looks like talking to many of us. And I think that there are a lot of juxtapositions. There are a lot of things that we're working through as young people that we're figuring out, that we're asking hard questions about. And there aren't good answers to a lot of questions. But I think by even knowing what questions we're asking ourselves, you learn a lot about where society is headed. I get questions all the time, like, how do I make my digital marketing appeal more to Gen Z? I'm like, make a Gen Z or you're head of digital marketing. It doesn't need to be so much more complicated than that insofar as I believe that the expert in any reality is the person closest to that reality. Why do we care so much about Gen Z? Like, why is their influence so important? Mm. What is the obsession? Like, what about... Gen Xers, why aren't we as focused on them, for example? What I always say is that middle school girls are the trends of every generation. They knew that Justin Bieber and Musical.ly were hot long before the rest of us did. And specifically, I would say it's black young women that's at the trends of every generation. And we are all following in the footsteps of the culture setters and the trend makers that sort of define the zeitgeist. And so I think that people are obsessed with understanding Gen Z because not only has it always been true that young people set the trends, it's now that we have the megaphone and the trend-setting power because we have social media and we have the savvy to make our trends mainstream much, much quicker with much less friction. To Ziad's earlier point about how millennials are digital natives and Gen Z is social and social media natives, I think that's exactly right and spot on. And I think it's because this is the same thing that we saw in Now This, which is where I was right before mm. Teen Vogue, and which I think my work and experience there has influenced a lot of what helped me get this job and hopefully where I can take Teen Vogue in the future, which is Now This was like the first socially distributed company that was just socially native. So yeah. when Now This launched, we didn't have a website. It was all delivering content to people where they are, meeting audiences where they are, on Instagram, on Twitter, on Snapchat, and publishing native news videos and different types of content to those apps. So I think that's exactly right. In this day and age, everybody wants to go viral. I think like every advertiser, every politician, whoever it is, everybody wants to go viral because of the power in that. And as I often said it now this and say here at Teen Vogue now, I don't think virality is a strategy. I think it is all about empowering the decision makers who actually are fluent in those platforms and understand them intuitively. And if they've grown up with it, all the better. Then nobody understands it better than they do. So it really is just listening to their insight when it comes to delivering on those platforms. Amy, I have a question for you. If TikTok existed 20 years ago, do you think it would have been as effective? If TikTok existed when you launched Teen Vogue, do you think it would have been as effective? It's just not possible. You know, everything sort of follows a, a course in time. There wouldn't have even been a print magazine if there had been a TikTok and it was what it is now. Do you, do you know what I'm saying? Like, print was such a hugely vital Product what at was that the time. expression of the brand at the time, right? But if you think about the creatives at the time, if you think about even how Ziad's defining the influencer at the time, like in theory, one could argue that Phil was the influencer. The format is today, it's TikTok, but you know, we're about to talk to Versha in a minute about the next 18 years of Teen Vogue, but ultimately, isn't that what's ever changing also? It's like the generations are changing. But I love that we've gone back to the creator and the storyteller. Right yeah, now. what occurs to me always, uh, Teen Vogue in, in, in my early years, audience was. To be perfectly honest, they were often obsessed with the editors. Yeah. They were obsessed, and the editors became personalities. We didn't have social media to put our personalities out there, but they came to our events. They came to Teen Vogue Fashion University. I did two best-selling books, which were called the Teen Vogue Handbook, A Guide to Careers in Fashion, because all these young women were coming to us as their role model, and they were interested mm -hmm. in our careers. This is a huge difference to kids today. They're still maybe interested in their career, but you have these platforms to develop yourself as a brand, yeah. to develop your voice, to explore it. I think it's 
wonderful, but they didn't have this way to express themselves. Teen Vogue was a hugely creative outlet for them. I think what's super interesting is, number one, the fact that content creators, you know, my kids are growing up with social media. This is all they're ever going to know. Content creators, the storyteller, the fact that we're not even using the term influencer anymore. There's something more authentic about a real creator. First, I want to talk to you for a minute because where we are today with Teen Vogue, I think, is so exciting and so important. And the work that you did now, the say more positive things about, and there's there's a reason why you're here. Can you for a second just talk about current Teen Vogue? Talk to us a little bit about your team today and how you feel like the brand is positioned in this moment in time to talk to this particular audience. I love that question. I will talk about my team all day long. Uh, I have to give the first shout out to the executive editor, Danny Quatang, who is absolutely amazing. She's been at Teen Vogue for a number of years now and helped lead the brand earlier this year while my interview process was ongoing and the search was ongoing. And she's absolutely incredible, I think, at understanding cultural beats and trends. And that is true for our entire staff. I'm very excited about somebody we just hired as our editorial assistant, actually. Her name is Ayana Ishmael, and like Ziad, she also just graduated in the spring. She's incredible. She's one of those people who, as a college student, as a teen, has freelance written for Teen Vogue before. So she yeah. was already in our network, already a contributor. She came in straight away, was instrumental in our New York Fashion Week coverage. She's worked with our senior entertainment editor, Claire Dodson, who recently wrote our Olivia Rodrigo cover story. And I think Claire did such a phenomenal job with that story. Another editor-in-chief said to me when I told them how excited I was about booking Olivia for the October cover, they're like, Olivia is the biggest thing in teendom, right? Like, she belongs on the Teen Vogue cover. Like, she's perfect Teen Vogue cover star. But I think Claire's article about Olivia marries a lot of things together very well. One that has stayed true throughout these 18 years of Teen Vogue is just how society treats young women, especially when those young women become famous or shoot to superstardom like Olivia. This is something we're reflecting on a lot as an industry and as a country with the treatment of Britney Spears and kind of looking back on how she was treated in coverage. I just have to ask this like kind of like a sidebar question. One thing that hasn't changed in 18 years is that you just talked about the cover. Does yes. the cover really even still matter anymore? I get this question all the time. It's like social media, whatever it is, the cover. Like, why does that even matter? I think people still see it for the elevated kind of moment and achievement that it is. Even being a digital-only publication now, that's absolutely something that coming into this I was a little worried about. As, again, a young teen myself that loved the print edition and collected those covers and loved them, I was like, does that really matter in the digital age? And isn't it catalyzing social media to yes. a certain extent? Yes, it absolutely is. And it, it's it's when we release those covers, it's still a very shareable moment. I think that's exactly why. I mean, we still marshal the creative and production resources needed for these cover moments, even though they are digital and not yeah. print. And that comes through yeah, in the final product. And it's and it's beautiful. And then you also get behind the scenes captured and social first content captured. And so it, it really is the total package. Your vision for the brand, when you think about the interest that this generation has in talking about, you know, gender fluidity, in sexuality, in politics and entertainment, I think is like this kind of really interesting intersection because you're here to storytell. You're here to entertain. I think the demographics now for Teen Vogue are like 60 percent female, 30 percent male. And then, by the way, there's like everything in between. What is your perspective on that, Versha? Because you've had lots of editors come before you that have had to kind of tackle that current generation of the moment. 
how do you think about the vision for the brand in that sense? Like, how do you entertain and really talk about some of these really important issues all at the same time? I think I see those as huge areas of opportunity. And I do think this is something Teen Vogue has already authentically been speaking to. But again, it's just reflected in the people that our audience loves or loves to follow and the people that inspire them. I'm thinking in recent weeks, you know, both Megan Thee Stallion and Billie Eilish have spoken out about the fight for reproductive rights in Texas, which translates nationwide to the fight for reproductive rights. And so every Gen Z or millennial or younger figure or celebrity that you see has causes that they're passionate about. And can you tell us a little bit about the Teen Vogue Summit this year? Because I know lots of people are super excited about it. Yes, we're so excited to bring back in-person events. We're really looking forward to it, and we will still do a hybrid model, so people who aren't able to attend our Teen Vogue Summit in December in L.A. in person can watch online and follow along online and on social media. But we are bringing back Summit to L.A. in December, and we will be talking about a lot of these same themes. Ziad, maybe you'll join me there. That I would, would be love great. to. I would love to. And I think that, again, looking forward to 2022 and, and looking forward to how we engage on climate crisis, racial justice, midterms, of course, And also celebrating, I think, a lot of the representation and achievements and representation that we've seen in culture and fashion, beauty and entertainment. I'm very honored that I'm the first South Asian American editor in chief of Teen Vogue. And that's why my first cover star in August was Maitri Ramakrishnan, a 19 year old Indian Canadian actress who's just wonderful. And another one of these Gen Z stars that is very open about her social justice issues that she cares about, while also being a very talented actress on Netflix. And so I, I just love that all of the Teen Vogue people, all of the Teen Vogue favorites really do embody how any young person today cares about all of these issues and understands that they're not mutually exclusive. Amy, you were the first editor of Teen Vogue. As we already discussed, what do you want your legacy to look like? Well, you know, my my legacy is Versha. You know, I have built my career on surrounding myself with talented people. And to me, listening to her speak is just a total joy because I feel that I succeeded in, in building a framework for a product that was elastic and that could grow and change. You know, 2003, my first issue It feels like we've moved light years. I already shared with you the anecdote about major female stars who didn't want the word feminist attached. And you guys know who all these people are. Now they're super feminists, by the way. The sea change is massive, and I'm glad Teen Vogue has survived and thrived and can change. And I'm very proud of that. You know, that that is my legacy at Teen Vogue, that it survives, that it can change like a human being. Mm -hmm. You know, we're talking about the 18th birthday that I I have children who are 19 and 22. They were the same age as as Teen Vogue. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, my my daughter graduated in May like you, but but she doesn't run her own business yet. But, you know, when I get home, I'm going to get her cracking. But (laughs) that, to me, is just thrilling to see that it it can last. And and just in terms of, and Zia, I'd love to hear your perspective of what you would like to see out of Teen Vogue. I would also like to hear that. Yeah, I mean— when I started a nonprofit when I was like 13, 14 years old, and I started a company when I was 15, 16 years old, and I was a part of this whole era of young people, many of whom Teen Vogue covered extensively, we can do anything. And we can be CEOs and activists and politicians at 17 and 18 years old. And I think a lot of us are now 22, 21, and we're looking back and being like, damn it, we should have just been kids. And I regret a lot of my journey. I cared so much about the world in the most esoteric sense that I didn't always care about my world and myself. And I cared more about being right than being kind. And... I wonder how Teen Vogue 
can and anyone serving young people create a generation that, of course, maintains our ambition and our, our demands to change the world, but also maintains our humanity and our youth. Because I think in part, young people today, when I read applications for Juve Consulting at 14 and 16 year olds, I'm like, are you living? Like, you started 17 nonprofits, right? And you're so stressed and you're so overwhelmed and you want to change everything about the world. But like, are you laughing? And are you loving? And are you tripping? And are you getting back up? And are you dusting yourself up? And do, are we creating space for kids to trip and fall and feel human? And I think when we think about space for young people, are we making them feel that they have to be a cover star? Or is it okay to not be the main character all of the time? And so having those hard conversations yeah. about how do we undo that to empower more living, I think is where I'd like to see us pushing. And Varsha? My goodness. I feel like I— How I, do you unpack all that? I, yeah, I want to <laughs> respond to so much in that, and we're definitely going to keep talking after this recording. I'm excited to do so. But I think I want to pull out a couple things from what Ziad said, and one of them is looking at these resumes of young people and asking them if they're living. I think that's something that I absolutely want to bring back to Teen Vogue and have Teen Vogue do for our audience now and in the future is to remind people that there is joy to be found in saving the world. I think that we are living at this time of so many overlapping crises. That's obviously so incredibly stressful and traumatic and layered trauma for marginalized communities, especially, but there is joy in it. And I, you know, I look at the squad in Congress. I look at people like AOC. I love them for bringing joy back to politics, right? They deal with their own BS and that's not always the case every single day, but they do make a lot of it look fun. They dance. They dance. They're having in the halls of Congress, they're dancing. They're having serious discussions about policy. You can do both. You can do both within the same hour or meeting. So I think it's really reminding people that when you come together and find your tribe and and this kind of community, there's joy in that. We need to remind each other that there's value in joy and rest and relaxation and that those are all necessary ingredients for saving the world and changing the world. And I think the other thing that I want to really just keep in mind going forward is for Teen Vogue to still be an optimistic brand. Mm -hmm. I think that we can and should be holding people, corporations, leaders accountable. And I think that we want to be real about diagnosing the source and causes of our problems. But I also want to highlight change makers and people who are actually coming up with solutions as much as anybody and make sure that we're not just leaving people with a sense of despair. I think we've already got some great columns. This was one of our newsletters last week, like seven ways to deal with your climate anxiety. Yeah, Like we're acknowledging this very tough and bleak reality that we're living in at times, but also acknowledging that there are ways to deal with it. And and we're all kind of in this together and dealing with the same thing. So I think there's even more community building that Teen Vogue can do with its audience on social, especially. And I think that's something that I definitely want to bring forward. Well, happy birthday. Happy 18th birthday, Teen Vogue. Amy, thank you so much for bringing the brand into the world. Versha, thank you so much for carrying the torch and then some. And Ziad, thank you for your honesty and your unbelievable perspective. Really appreciate everyone's time today. Thank you, Pam. Thank you, Pam. Thanks for having us. Happy birthday, Team Vogue. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. That's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. I am your host, Pam Druckerman. Talk to you next time. Follow Influences Currency wherever you listen to podcasts for monthly episodes. To hear more from Pam, follow her on LinkedIn. This podcast was produced by Seaplane Armada. It was created by Deirdre Connors, Courtney Verdier, Eric Johnson, Danielle Altolio, Julie Shen, Nico Steele, and Grace Stearns, with creative direction by Nancy Rosenberg and talent outreach and casting by Amanda Miller, Fiona Kellerman, and Greg Tharker.